This episode of The Cinema Crew is brought to you by Simply Energy and the Simply Gold Class Plus Energy Offer. We are going back to the Overlook Hotel in Stephen King's Doctor Sleep. You're running away from something? From myself, I guess. You're magic. Like me. I always called it The Shining. When I was a kid, there was a place. You still owe a debt. Pay it. Wakey, wakey. Nobody shines like you, Doc. Romance, Seasons, Greetings, and George Michael in Last Christmas. Now is the time for romance. You like? I like. Sorry. You can't be here! And awards buzz for Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory. Aquí está tu merienda. Esas magdalenas renegridas ni pensarlo. Son integrales. Un día me traerás un plato de alfalfa para comérmelo porque ahora dicen que es buena para el corazón. That's this week on the Cinema Crew. Hello and welcome to The Cinema Crew, the podcast that talks new movies every week. My name is Michael Campbell, but you can call me Cambo. And joining me as always is Vary McIntyre. Hello. And Dan Miranda. Hello. Now your chance to win a Gold Class Double Pass thanks to Simply Energy and the Simply Gold Class Plus Energy offer coming up just a little later on. But first. We both shine. <gasps> These things eat what shines. You should be afraid. They're going to keep coming. The Shining is one of the most iconic films of all time. Released way back in 1980 and based on the book of the same name by Stephen King, the film is so now ingrained in the language of cinema that you can probably recognise its famous moments even if you haven't seen it. Directed by the godfather of auteur director Stanley Kubrick and featuring one of the all-time great performances from Jack Nicholson, it's not an understatement to say that Mike Flanagan, director of the official sequel Stephen King's Doctor Sleep, as big shoes to fill. Dan, do they fit? Do you know what? I think these shoes fit very comfortably. These are a nice <laughs> pair of slippers. Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, as you say, The Shining is such a pivotal masterpiece in cinema. But I think what is so unique about this film is it it pays homage to that and it pays homage to that whilst entertaining and uh, grasping a new uh, audience for for this film. Now, this one is set several years after the events of The Shining, and the now grown Dan Torrance struggles to balance the the demons of his past through alcohol, whilst trying to suppress what little shine is left within him. Now, the shine is his ability to see ghosts. Essentially, is that right? It's kind of like the Force in Star Wars. It's a little ill defined, and yeah. it does whatever is necessary at that time. And they don't specifically say that in the the original film. So, I I appreciate yeah. in this film they do go down the path of explaining mm. it. And um, so then he soon meets a young girl named Abra with inconceivable shining ability and they team up to challenge a group known as the True Knot who have for years pillaged and plundered their way across the globe in their pursuit of immortality by killing children with shining ability and consuming what is known as steam. And they collect the steam in canisters which conceal the screams of murdered children, which is shockingly similar to Monsters, Inc., 
That is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I can parallel anything to a Disney film. Yeah, that's true. And it's. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, oh, yeah, that old plot again. But you really, you're, yeah, it is a plot of a different film, isn't yeah. it? Okay, I didn't make that connection. It, it is quite strange they call it steam. That kind of put me on edge the whole movie. But anyways. So but it's it's kind of one thing because you're right. And I am a huge fan of The Shining, the original Stanley Kubrick film. Mm. And you said masterpiece. And I legitimately do think it is as far as like the craft of filmmaking goes. Yes. Is a masterpiece. And you might think it's it's a big thing to do a sequel. But there is a sequel book that Stephen King wrote back in, I think it was 2013. So it's not like they're just trying to sequelize. You know, that's a pretty big trend. We talked about mm. Terminator last week. Yeah. This is based on a book from the original author. So it's not like they're kind of just scraping the bottom of the barrel to try and get something, you know? Yeah, and that's quite rare for Stephen King to do a sequel for his uh, works as well. So I think he said it was inspired by a fan who just asked him, hey, what's Dan up to these days, you know? Imagine that. Oh, You're just that like, kid? what should I write now? And someone's oh. like, what's Dan Torrance up to? He's like, oh, that, that'll do. Yeah, yeah that's actually really interesting because it's less about him in The Shining, about the kid. I had really no idea that the supernatural powers was The Shining of that film. I've seen it quite a number of times. And maybe it's been quite a few years since I've seen it, but all I remember is it's mostly about the father's story and how he um, delves into alcoholism and just insanity because of this supernatural house and how many ghosts there are in there and he can't handle that and that's what drives him crazy. And then this story is about the after effects of that on the child and how he's got now this childhood trauma that's followed him into adulthood and he's trying to suppress it. And in doing so becomes his father being an alcoholic and a yeah, a bit off edge. And this this is what I find interesting about the fact that they've made Doctor Sleep is uh it's kind of a a well known secret in Hollywood that Stephen King was really unhappy mm. with Stanley Kubrick's version mm. of The Shining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so much so that in nineteen ninety seven he readapted it as a miniseries. No one's yeah, ever it seen it because well. why would you when mm. you've got Stanley Kubrick's? But he was so unhappy and he thought they got it so wrong that he thought, I'm just going to do it myself. But in Doctor Sleep, so a lot of the iconography of The Shining that people recognize, the blood coming out of the elevator, the creepy twins, the chase through the hedge maze, none of it's in the book. That was all made for the movie. Yet Doctor Sleep uses imagery Mm. from the movie so heavily. And I, I wonder how much Stephen King has now just like resorted to the fact that people know the movie more than they know the book. Yeah, he has to accept that now. (laughs) So the writer-director Mike Flanagan, who did The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, among other many other movies, but I love that series. It's incredible. And he's adapted the novel of Dr. Sleep, but also, as he said, um, it acknowledges and references Kubrick's film. So it must have been such a task to reconcile those two things, trying to keep Stephen King happy, which I've heard in interviews he has been, and he's been happy that the critics have been happy about Uh the movie. So that's probably what he's more interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's this mix between trying to be faithful to the book but then using the imagery, which doesn't really have any effect on the plot or narrative or characters or anything but having well, it there for the fans. It's the kind of thing because that's so much what people associate with The Shining now that if you didn't put it mm. in, people would be like, that's not a sequel to The Shining. Yeah. Even though technically it is, that's not mm. what people picture when they picture The Shining. No. It's so a- I find it interesting that he was like forced to accept this version he doesn't like mm. as, as the official Shining. Yeah. And even um, the recent film Ready Player One uses a lot of that iconography yeah. in that film. 
And I think it's just so ingrained in, you know, the mm. pop culture mindset that it's impossible to ignore. And what I find interesting is based on his bad experience with the original uh, Shining, which he adapted the screenplay that was then thrown out and rewritten completely from scratch. Oh, boy. Ouch. And he is very involved in this one. And I guarantee he would not let that happen again. But it also must kind of, it must hurt the ego when someone's adapted your work and you're not happy with it, but everyone says it's a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, imagine then what his film would have looked like. I'd actually be interested in seeing. Yeah, it's from 1997. Well, I suppose, yeah, we've watched <laughs> the miniseries. Okay, not that. It's, it's not as good. <laughs> as, a film, as a film, it would be different than a series. Yeah. Um, but what I liked about this sequel is that, yes, we do learn more about Dan, but it also then goes back to the events directly after The Shining when he is a child still and they've got an actress that looks like the mother character to yeah. come in and they've like done some scenes where he's waking up in the middle of the night from nightmares and things like this. It's funny because yeah. Shelley Duvall is mm. the, the actress from The Shining and she's got such a unique look that you can't mm. just cast anyone as her. No. They need to look specifically like her. So it's kind of like an odd thing when you have to cast someone that's so iconically, like so iconic looking. Yeah, well, she's similar, same wig. <laughs> but yeah, also, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I also appreciate that they didn't go down the CGI route and try and reconfigure the actress's face from the original film. Because oh, yeah, they could have done that. They do that for so many films and I think it just takes you out of it. Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. You, like every time we talked about it in Gemini, man, I can never see past it. Yeah. The only thing that's ever done it is Ant-Man of all films, of all random films. <laughs> Ant-Man was the only one that ever convinced me. So how do you think, because Stephen King, he's kind of the master of the horror and The Shining is seen as one of the scariest movies of all time. How do you think it holds up as a horror movie? Well, that's exactly one point I wanted to make. This this doesn't feel as much as of a horror as the, the original film. This feels like a thriller mystery mm. and almost an adventure film. Like I felt like there, yeah. there was purpose and a plot that was going like you want to see what happens. Not mm. to say that that doesn't happen in the original, but there was yeah. there was impetus. I guess with a horror genre you're expecting more gore and blood and killing and things. There is that in this film, but specifically I think because it's about children, killing children, you don't see a lot of that. Right. <laughs> so it can't rely on those horror conventions. There is a kid that gets tortured to death. Um but you don't see So, a so lot. don't bring your kids along. Mm. No, <laughs> definitely not. So the Jack Nicholson performance from The Shining, it's huge. Like it's such an iconic performance. And then in comes Ewan McGregor, who is a very, very, very good actor. But how did you mm. find his performance? Very subtle and understated. Yeah. As is his role in the film because he's sort of more of a background character to this Abra. Yeah, he's the, not like the young the, girl. The, he's not the... Like he's the lead, but he's not like mm. the the person you focus on. It's a very ensemble-driven film, yeah. and I feel like mm. everyone has a part to play that not one person really is like the person that you connect with. Yeah, I think Rebecca Ferguson, who plays the antagonist in this, has a lot more screen time to mm. develop her character than uh, Ewan McGregor's uh, I'd say character they, they, does, actually. So, yeah, they lean more into the, the villains mm. and try and make – and I think a sympathetic villain is something that – I mean, not necessarily sympathetic people. Yeah, like, she's not sympathetic. Um, <laughs> well, what I mean is like when they spend time with the villain yes. to make you see yeah. their motivation yeah, and things for like sure. that, it's, it actually not, really helps. Yeah, it's the relationship and the dynamic between that villain and the young girl, Abra, that comes out a lot and is explored more. And Ewan McGregor's character, Dan, is more the the guiding voice of reason and he kind of comes in to help Abra – but she's the one who's more active and, and wanting to do things and wanting to stop these villains from killing children. 
And an actress, Kylie Curran, who this is her first major role. She's only done maybe one or two other things, mm. not very big things. She's great in this. Yeah. She's certainly like kick-ass girl hero. Mm. Yeah, I can see her becoming like a a young starlet. Oh, and, and Ewan McGregor is on this weird kick of playing adult versions of <laughs> iconic, like he was the adult Christopher Robin just yes. recently and now he's the adult the Danny Torrance. The young Obi-Wan. The, that's <laughs> right. Then, yeah. So he plays either the older version of a child character or the young adult version of an old character. <laughs> or a talking candlestick. Or a talking candlestick. <laughs> so I, the other thing I do know is this film, it's quite long. And how did you feel it goes with pacing? Did you, did you ever feel that length? No, not Up at all. Me either. I was so entranced by the whole thing. Mm. So who do you think should see Doctor Sleep? So I think this film is for anyone who who loves a good mystery and a, a, a thought-provoking film um, uh, while still managing to remain uh, to be entertaining because, as you said, it's quite a long film. But, yeah, Byron and I did not feel that it dra- dragged at all. For purists of the original, the original Kubrick film, th- there's enough in this to keep you entertainers. There's a lot of imagery and even the score is very reminiscent. Um, and it, it's celebrated in this film, but I feel that this will be more of a, a general uh, pleasing film. Yeah, because even if you didn't see the first Shining and, you know, people when they tell you, oh, you haven't seen this classic mm. and make you feel bad about yeah. it, <laughs> or even if you have seen it and you're like, I don't get all the fuss, like this goes into what The Shining is more than The Shining did. So even if you didn't get The Shining or you haven't seen it, this is a good one to start with. Mm. Mom, you are very bad girl. I worry about you. Freedom. Freedom. That's truly horrific. Well, it's a techno manger. Yeah. It's a disco nativity scene. Well, Christmas is fast approaching, and it just wouldn't be right if we didn't have another Christmas rom-com. From Love Actually to The Holiday to the cinematic classic that is The Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, it's become a warm and familiar staple. This year's offering is Last Christmas, starring Mother of Dragons herself, Amelia Clark, and new up-and-comer Henry Golding. Do you think this one will become a Christmas must-watch? We haven't seen this one yet, unfortunately, which we are very sad about because mm. it is my guilty pleasure to enjoy Christmas. <laughs> oh. And this one is about a young woman who last Christmas almost died. And so this year she's kind of gone off the rails. She's not having a good time. She's like, what is the point of life? What am I doing here? And she keeps bumping into this man uh, played by Henry Golding and he brings out the best in her and makes her see that uh, life is worth living and she should pursue her dreams and stop wasting away her life in a Christmas shop playing a little elf. Um, So, yeah, it's got all the... The best things about rom-coms, romance and comedy, but also it sounds like there's going to be a lot of heart mm. and a lot of drama with it as well. So I think that the really deciding factor for a lot of people might even be uh, the director of the film, mm-hmm. which is uh, Paul Feig. Uh, and that name might not necessarily even sound that familiar to you, but he's made movies like Bridesmaids, The Heat, Spy, and most recently A Simple Favor yeah. starring Henry Golding. Yeah. Uh, and he is, uh, especially when he's in the comedy realm, I would say specifically, Pretty spot on with his humour. The only film of his I didn't love was Ghostbusters, Mm. and I would say that's not his fault. That whole situation around that film, it was never quite going to succeed in the way that it should have. I wish, I really wish it had of. But he is such a solid comedy director, and when you got someone as charming as Henry Golding, as charming as Amelia Clark, a setting that's so nice, it seems like this film is just set to warm your heart. Well, really, for me, it's about Emma Thompson 
who wrote this film and I think she got some friends in to help her write it and I guess it's one of these situations where you're a pretty famous Hollywood star and you can just call in favours because I was looking at like the production cast and it just looks like they've never done anything before. But I can see that they've worked with Emma Thompson in the past so Uh she's probably just been like, hey, want to make this film with me? What amazed me about this one is that it's mostly filmed around like Covent Garden, Piccadilly Circus, like beautiful spots in London. So as they say, the setting became a character. It's, It's part of the narrative and even from the trailers, you can see lots of fairy lights everywhere. And apparently that was filmed at Christmas time around those areas in the middle of the night because it's very hard to get permits. Oh, right. <laughs> and so because of all those Christmas lights already being up, they just used them and they couldn't use their own natural lighting. Oh, really? So everything that you see is an actual London Christmas. And actually, if you've been there for a London Christmas, it's amazing. It's just this feeling that you get. And I think for Australians, when you don't get snow, anything that's like cold and when you warm up with a hot chocolate and see all the Christmas lights, it's just very yeah. different. Our Christmases never look like the movies, do no. they? No. I'm always in shorts sweating. And that's, not, <laughs> that's not what you associate with Christmas. This is exactly but, what you would expect. Well, yeah, it is kind of like, I mean, I guess the idea of that Dickensian Christmas came from England anyway with yeah. things like A Christmas Carol. But it does lean into that idea that like it's kind of a magical time of the yeah. year and it's a little bit uh, almost like a magic realism. The other aspect of this film You've got Paul Feig as the director, you've got Emma Thompson as a screenwriter, and then you've got the music of George Michael. It's just like how many ticks can they get before they've got you? Well, personally, I think Bridesmaids, for me, is my favourite comedy of the last decade, and I think Paul Feig's Mm. comedy is just so on the nose, which is the way I love it. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's just silly enough to be silly funny, but not so it's not dumb. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yes. So who do you think should see Last Christmas? So... This looks like an awesome film for an array of people, in my opinion. I think if you hate Christmas films, you could certainly relate to the protagonist Kate's story in this as she's quite cynical. Mm. But if you love it, you're already on board. So, you know, like like you say, Valerie, like the, the Christmas lights, it, it does mm. give that traditional Christmas feeling. So you're going to love that. Obviously, Emma Thompson, I think she's, she's making a name for herself in her own right as a writer and I feel that that was mm. evident in Late Night and she's got something to say that's quite current and I feel that, yeah, this is going to appease to a lot of people. Yeah. I, I think it also shows that uh, you know she was such a huge on, in the English comedy scene in like the 80s mm. but now people just know her as Nanny McPhee. Oh, <laughs> so mm. it is kind of nice to, to show, oh, no, no, she's a very accomplished writer. Yeah, she does a lot of funny roles and in this one she does a Russian accent so that, <laughs> that's going to be quite interesting. Don't forget she's Mrs Potts as well. Mm. <laughs> um, and I guess if you like Amelia Clark's other couple of movies, it sounds like this one's going to be Me Before You sprinkled with a bit of love actually. Uh, and if you're a bit down about the real world and this might be good to escape into a magical rom-com about Christmas. Also in cinemas, Terminator Dark Fate. Welcome to the day after Judgment Day, which is 30 years later. <laughs> I still think Dark Fate sounds like one of those spin-off novels you get, like a teen spin-off novel. And 47 metres down, Uncaged. Deep in a cave where it's dark and there's sharks and they're blind and they're going to eat you. <laughs> yes, you can hear about both of those movies and, in fact, everything in cinemas right now in our back catalogue, which you can access from whichever podcast app you'd like. Savara, you mentioned Covent Garden and all the fairy lights that they have on there. Yeah. And let me tell you, that's going to take a lot of energy. 
I'm really hoping mm. that they're using Simply Energy, specifically the Simply Energy Gold Class Plus Energy offer. Yes, that's right. The cinema crew has a new sponsor on board who love movies almost as much as us. Simply Energy has a great energy deal for movie lovers. Switch to Simply Energy Gold Class Plus and receive up to eight Gold Class tickets with your energy offer of the films out this week. We've got Stephen King's Doctor Sleep. We've got Last Christmas. We're about to talk about Pain and Glory. Which do you think you'd see in Gold Class? Oh, in Gold Class, I think a long movie is always a wise choice. So I would go Doctor Sleep. Yeah, I might go there with you. I think one. I'm going to go with Last Christmas and so much dessert. <laughs> Because that, oh. you know, get a blanket, get the dessert, yeah. and probably fall asleep, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, simply search Simply Energy to find out more. Conocí a Lucrecia, mi mujer. Nos casamos. Ahora tengo dos hijos mayores. Mi propio restaurante. Y en todos estos años solo he vuelto a Galicia para ver a mis padres. Esta es la primera vez que piso Madrid. Como dices en tu monólogo, Madrid se había convertido... In una plaza difícil para mí. For those with a keen eye for awards season in cinema, you might want to keep an eye out for Pain and Glory. It's come fresh off its Cannes Film Festival run and managed to snag a Best Actor prize for its star Antonio Banderas. But is it boring Oscar bait or is it something more? Uh, uh, look, I saw this film at the Melbourne Queer Film Mini Festival. Uh, it was in that film. Wow. It's like a weird little eight and a half, nine cinematic universe yes. they've crafted here. Except, oh, no. Wow. So I didn't know any of that background. And because I didn't see it at the Queer Film Festival and wasn't expecting mm. such a big queer element, for me, I think I saw a very different film because I really enjoyed this one. But I'll tell you, it wasn't until the end. Okay, so it's a bit of a slow burn and yes. it builds to something. It, it was a very slow burn. And I was I remember sitting through it thinking, it took me a while to understand what kind of film it was. And so I think if you ex- are going in expecting yeah. that it is a slow burner and it's more of a character piece and there's lots of relationships and there's not a linear narrative. It goes back in time to when the character is about nine years old and living in poverty with his mother and then him when he's older and he's dealing with all these physical and mental ailments and that's it just switches between those things and it it kind of just flows along like a quiet river and you have to be ready for this journey and then at the end you understand the whole film I think and I do like those kind of films where you get to the end and you think oh okay I get it now and I would then watch it again to see it with a different perspective. Yeah, I quite like that as well. I, I like an idea of a film that kind of throughout the film, it's almost frustrating the first watch because mm. you're trying to piece it together mm. and then suddenly it'll click into place, but it makes you appreciate because then you start, sometimes I walk out of a movie and I forget it, mm. <laughs> like just instantly. But movies like this, you walk out yeah. and you instantly start replaying it in mm. your head and you start piecing things together. And I think that that is it's an extra layer to a film that's always kind of appreciated as well. Mm. And as much as you say this is based on eight and a half, it's also um, kind of semi-autobiographical of the filmmaker because uh, about 30 years ago he made a film uh, and the main star in him didn't talk after the film came out for almost mm. 30 years. And then at some anniversary gala, they actually had to get back together and it was about the idea that he was reaching back into his past and people that he made films with and mm. those connections. So it's kind of yeah. an adaption and an autobiography kind of melded into mm. one. Right, yes, because that plot line does happen in this right, film. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, interesting. I will say that although the film 
overall I didn't really enjoy per se. I did uh, enjoy the unfamiliar locale because it's because it's obviously set in Spain, and mm. um, so I think I enjoyed, you know, the the culture and the background, and also felt that I was asking myself questions like, could or would I live in a cave? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very nice whitewashed cave. Yeah. I was uh, like, I'm in Fraggle Rock down there. <laughs> what I find interesting because, you know, we we talk about a couple of foreign films per year in this podcast, but it's not heaps. But you do tend to see that there's a really, there's a different flow and a, and a different yes. kind of style to them. Yeah. The Hollywood movie is so refined now and formulaic almost to a fault mm. that when you see something that isn't, and as you said, this is nonlinear, mm. it's a little slower, it's a little more introspective, it really does feel I mean, I was going to say otherworldly, but it's just other country. Yeah. Mm. But I love seeing other countries' perspectives on things and stuff like that. And I think that it really broadens, especially in like a cinematic mindset, broadens your taste a lot, kind of diving into things like this. Yeah. And one universal thing about this and about the character is that for me as a writer and other creatives, sometimes you can feel like you're a bit of an imposter to your own work and that you're never going to be as good as you want or as people might give you credit for and you you can't accept that. And that's what this character goes through at its core. It's about this guy whose childhood has influenced his creative works and those works audiences think are masterpieces and he's just like, oh, no, they're, no, they're not that good. What are you talking about? And he's very introspective and not that I can relate to this, but he gets addicted to heroin and he, yeah. <laughs> it's about like Dan Torrance's story as well. He's trying to suppress any sort of emotion or, or childhood memories that he's got with drugs and But alcohol. I will say, like, you mentioned heroin. This is the most heroin I've ever seen on screen, ever. <laughs> Have you, more than train spotting? I've not seen that. Oh, it's um, a movie about heroin addicts. That's oh, got a wow. lot of heroin, famously. Oh, wow. <laughs> you and McGregor as well, though. What a connection. So... <laughs> Speaking of leading men, there's a lot of buzz about Antonio Banderas. How did you find his performance? I loved him in this. I prefer it much better than his role as Puss in Boots in Shrek. Um, you, <laughs> know when, yeah, yeah. you know when there's uh, actors who will do a broad range of genres and you just prefer them in one thing. And mm. it's usually comedy actors I like as more serious ones. Yeah. And I know Antonio Banderas can do different genres like that and I do prefer him in more serious roles. And you can really feel his acting. I don't know how else to describe it. I think it's probably a comfortable position for him because he's speaking his native language mm -hmm. and, mm. you know, he's familiar with the terrain. He just seemed really comfortable in the character. Yeah. That's and he's worked with this filmmaker before and I'm sure there's something yeah. about the language of working with the same filmmaker mm, sure. so many times. In like Brad Pitt and... Um, and David Fincher work together a lot and David Fincher tends to get the best performances out of Brad Pitt in all yeah. of his movies. So I think there's right. also something to that. Yeah. And we were talking about foreign language films and I think the last one maybe we did was with Penelope Cruz as That's well. That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all these connections. So who do you think should see Pain and Glory? So whilst I can appreciate the, uh, the, the class and genre of this film, I think um, if you enjoy those more introspective, as you say, arthouse films with, you know, thought provocation and subtitles, then this is a film that you will really, you know, get something from. If you're a fan of the director's other films, uh, which are classics, and they're actually hard to find, so it's got the feel of one of these classic older European films, but you can access it now, <laughs> um, but only at Rivoli. 
Now, for your chance to win a Gold Class Double Pass, thanks to Simply Energy and the Simply Gold Class Plus Energy offer, simply head to the Village Cinema's social media pages, look for the Cinema Crew post and answer the question. In celebration of Stephen King's Doctor Sleep, we want to know, what is your favourite Stephen King film? Yes, simply leave your answer with the hashtag TheCinemaCrew for your chance to win. Next week, it's good morning to a new set of Charlie's Angels and the underdog story of the year where the underdog is still a huge multinational corporation in Ford vs Ferrari. Until then, thank you, Vari. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. My name is Cambo and this is The Cinema Crew with Village Cinema.